the vision today is to unlock the connection between humans and animals for a better world. That's Craig Piggott, the founder of Holter, and this is Wild Hearts. <laughs> Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. A day in the life of a dairy farmer consists of a 4.30 a.m. wake up every day, 365 days a year. Farmers must then move their cows from paddock to paddock. All the while, they must be acutely attuned to the animal's needs. Hundreds and thousands of individual cows with a different temperament. It's almost an impossible task. Our next guest, Craig Piggott, grew up on a dairy farm where he saw his parents put in 80-hour weeks just to keep up. Determined to improve the lives of his parents and dairy farmers all around the world, he co-founded Holter. Holter is a fenceless farming startup. My favorite way of describing what Holter does is that they are mind control technology for cows. They've developed an IoT wearable collar that uses Pavlovian conditioning to safely teach the cow to move in response to different signals, like vibrations and sounds, that are triggered by the collar. The technology has even enabled one farming family to control their New Zealand dairy farm from France. It's literally a life-changing device for farmers. In today's episode, you'll hear from the incredible storyteller Craig on the future of farming and a bunch of other actionable tips to create a culture of radical honesty. We'll also hear from Holter's very first believer and the founder of one of the most ambitious companies in the world, Rocket Lab. Peter Beck talks about some of the biggest mistakes made by New Zealand entrepreneurs and what convinced him to invest in Holter. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Craig's up first, followed by Peter. Enjoy. Well, let's kick it off right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. What was it like growing up on a farm? Yeah, good, good question. It was, it was good actually. I often wonder how I could recreate such a childhood for like I don't have kids at all, and they're not in uh, in the planning stages at all. But <laughs> when I do, when I do have kids, I've often wondered like how I would try and recreate the experience of growing up on a farm. I think it's just yeah, so broad. You're not really constrained by anything at all. Like there's no kind of rules or anything it's just very much like yourself and the land and like tasks to get done as such so I loved it yeah kind of taught me taught me a lot of things used to work like pretty hard like instills I think a lot of life principles in you growing up on a farm when you want something and like you kind of have all the abilities to achieve it if you just set your mind to it if that makes sense mm. if you want to buy a car cool that's fine like do some work it's right there. You can do it whenever you want, as many hours as you want. Just get outside. Go. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was pretty classic, actually. Grew up in a, yeah, in a household. We didn't have a TV. We didn't have Playstations or anything like that. Didn't spend any time inside. It was always just like outside, kind of solving problems with, with what you had around you. What were some of your earliest memories then? On a farm? Good question, actually. Paint the picture of like... Are you, am I, am I seeing you on a horse right now? Are you building something? Yeah, actually, uh, no, I've only ridden a horse a couple of times. Are you driving at like 12 uh, years old? 
Oh yes, definitely. <laughs> Actually, that's a good example. We were shifting for everyone shift farm shifts like farms on the on the first of June, and I would have been maybe twelve or thirteen. And somehow we just got the logistics a bit wrong. And myself and my best friend, who was also like 12 or 13, were left on the old farm with this ute, this diesel ute that like, firstly had no battery. We couldn't start it. We had to get, I think it was a neighbor to push start us with the tractor. And then we had to drive it like 30 minutes across the Waikato to our new farm. And my parents wow. had already like left. And, <laughs> and so you're trying to solve these problems on the fly. And then you find yourself, yeah, driving, trying to avoid all the main roads and, and driving to, to, to a new block at like 15, uh, 13 years old, I think we were. You can't stall it, like, cause you can't start it. Yeah, it wouldn't idle, a whole lot of like problems. So you just spend I'm your whole time. amazed that you knew what any of those things were at 13 years old. <laughs> yeah, you, you learn that stuff pretty, pretty early to be fair on a farm, yeah. What, what even led you to work at Rocket Lab? It was pretty, like growing up on a farm when you always, I was always kind of fixing stuff and building things. And I was always fascinated with like automation. Actually, when I was a child, I thought I was going to be a, like someone that designed factories. I really liked that concept of like, you could build something and it could do this one thing like thousands of times and you could like walk away and it would keep doing it. Mm. And that it just, I guess it's awesome, almost the notion of being leveraged. Like I just loved that from a, from a young age. And so I studied engineering, kind of still with that in mind a little bit. I studied mechanical engineering, but then pretty quickly, Rocket Lab was, was really just like the dream job, like especially within New Zealand and even around the world now. But that was, I didn't know much about like startup. I didn't know anything about startups. I didn't know anything about the culture. It was just a big problem and they all seemed to work pretty hard and I knew I could work hard and I wanted to work at Rocket Lab. And so that's kind of, I guess, the why. Um, and what exactly were you doing there? So I, funnily enough, actually, Pete was, I, I, Pete doesn't know this, but I applied to Rocket Lab in my first year of uni for an internship. I put on a, like a shirt, took my CV, and I had all these projects I'd done. I'd built 3D printers. I had restored cars. I had like built automated like feeding systems for animals. These are all as a, like, as a teenager. And so I went and knocked on the door and gave them my stuff and I just was like very underprepared and wasn't expecting on the spot for someone to open the door and then just give me like a speed interview. I gave them my CV and they just started like, just load, like laying into me with questions. And I was like, whoa, I was, was not ready for that. And I would have been, I don't know, 19 at the time. What um, was in the speed interview? Just a bunch of questions about like what I knew about rockets and right. why I wanted to work. Really putting it on you. <laughs> yeah, just like on the spot. <laughs> the only questions I could answer properly were like, can you work hard? Like what's the hardest you've worked in your life? And I was like, man, I got this one wrapped up. But um, when I was 13, I restarted the car. <laughs> and so, yeah, I grew up like, I don't know, plowing paddocks 20, 24, 30 hours straight, like all that kind oh. of stuff. I had, I had heaps of heaps of that, but no, so I didn't get the job. And then Pete was coming to speak at university and I was like, sweet, I'm going to go along and get a job was kind of the goal. Mm. and hung around and ended up talking to him afterwards and then about some separate stuff but managed to after about a year of knowing pete convince him to hire me and so i started at rocket lab working directly for peter beck and it was yeah a pretty surreal experience to be fair this is before their first launch we were 50 60 70 people 
And I kind of just started off, yeah, doing a bunch of all sorts of, of different things, kind of wherever Pete like needed, needed help the most. And so, yeah, it was, it was an unreal experience. I think I learned more my year at Rocker Lab than I learned at my four years at university. Well, yeah. like, and I stand by that. So. What do you think were top one to three things that you really lean on at Holter? Or, or at just, generally, just generally, what are the top three things that you've learned from there? Top three things. First one was just that like, you walked in the door and it felt different. Like every single person there was like incredibly driven, was like determined to make a difference and like the energy i guess or the feeling that you could kind of do anything was was like so powerful and so that you could maybe summarize as the culture i'm not i'm not sure how you'd want to summarize that but that was probably the first thing and that was i'd never felt anything like that and so that was incredible the wow. second thing was probably like the ambition from pete himself and also a lot of other people there like I'm starting a rocket company in New Zealand and I don't care if you think I'm crazy, like I'm doing it. Like there's not even a doubt on my mind that I'm going to do this. And that was like, there's nothing more inspiring than someone who's like that bold and that determined to like make it happen. So that was incredible. And the third thing would just be, that was my, my, like the window into kind of the startup world. It was high growth world. Like, hold on. You can go convince venture capitalists to give you money for like an idea and then not only does it come with money, it comes with all of this expertise and this guidance. And then you can, you can go around and like hire all these top people from like all around New Zealand or the world even. And you assemble like this kind of this crew to go tackle this ambitious problem. Like mm. that was just fascinating to me. And I, from that moment on, I knew I would never ever work in like a big corporate. <laughs> I was like, I will never do anything but startups. This is incredible, I love it. So you had the startup itch, so to say, and yep. when, when did you first have an idea to start your own company? Um, I, like my parents are self-employed because they are dairy farmers. And I, with this notion of being leveraged, I always wanted to build something that would be far bigger than me. And that was probably what I was trying to solve for. I, I loved my time at Rocker Lab and it was really, really hard to leave, especially before, before the first flight, you know, it's mm. kind of naturally you want to see that, you want to see that rocket fly, but yeah, it would have been, it was really at Rocker Lab that it just like, it just kind of picked up momentum, this feeling. It was like, hold on. I like, now I have, there's literally no excuse. I, I, I know how, how inefficient and, and like wrong a whole lot of farming is. And I know how I could solve this and from an engineering perspective and then i am in an environment right now where they're doing like this crazy stuff and i know how that works and so like i have to do it really i like i i'm lying to myself if i pretend i'm not in a good spot or i don't know how like i know how to do this i just have to do it and so that's kind of how how it started yeah like that's good what was the so what was the idea the idea initially was just it's it stemmed from the fact that Farming is like, I'd say quite misunderstood. It's like very, very, the first principles of farming are very complex. And often the people that are farming like aren't particularly good at articulating why or how, but the, you know, the spreadsheets I'd see like my old man using the stuff was always blown away, blown away with. And so on top of that, they're working 80, hundred hour weeks and they're kind of just like crying out for a, like a better way. And it's just never been there. Like, I think 
because it's so complex and it's hard to understand how everything works, it's pretty rare that you get to understand that and then you get to couple it with also like the engineering know-how of, of how to solve it. And so that, that was kind of the why. Initially, Holter was setting out to, to try and like pretty much think about, I wanted it to be this like massive shift in, in farming. I didn't want it to be like a, an iteration or a little improvement. I wanted it to be like a ground up rebuild, I guess. And so these days we say like, if you started to farming again, what would it look like? And mm-hmm. you, you get out down the first principles and you pretty quickly end up at the cow and then you build a collar. And, and so that all kind of makes sense. But it was very focused around the cow. It was very focused around doing what's better for like the cow, what's better for the farmer and their mental health and also what's better for like the like your production it had to make sense from a bottom line perspective and from a from a labor perspective so that was kind of initially very simply it was virtual fencing this is one of the biggest things on a farm everything on a farm is is to control the location of a cow and i'm pretty sure we could train cows to do this we we're already doing it with dogs and we're already farmers will like kind of speak to the cows and the cow shed to like move them up the bales and there's already hints of this all around. It was just putting it into a, a centralized system. And so what, how did you think you could do it with cows though? <laughs> it was, we didn't really know, to be honest. We, I had like this, this hunch and naturally I was like, well, I'll, I'll try and build a collar and I'll just give it a go. I think this is actually something you see, you see these days in the rocket industry is it's actually there's not that many like rocket scientists around anymore. Like a lot of it's just like rocket engineering. It's mm-hmm. the tools we have on hand are so powerful and computers are so powerful and simulations so good that you can really like build it, test it and iterate. Like you just, instead of thinking heaps about it, just do it. And so we kind of took that philosophy, I guess, and just set up to build, like build some hardware, write a bunch of firmware and just see if we could, if we could get a cow to understand a bunch of cues that, that we were going to use to train to train it with talk yep. about the a day in the life of a farmer and yep. what's your relationship like with farmers and, and how do you build around that a day in the life of of a farmer before halter or after halter before halter or at yep. least at least when you go to a farm and, and they don't know who halter is or maybe they've heard about halter from their friend yeah a day in the life of a farmer so it is I still spend a lot of time with farmers. My parents are still still running a dairy farm and I have a huge amount of admiration for like what, what farmers do and the problems they solve and, and kind of the people that they are. A day in a life, well, you're up at 4.30 pretty much every morning, no matter what, Christmas day, raining and yeah, I don't know, there's a, there's a thunderstorm, like nothing waits for you. That's, that's actually something that farming teaches you is just like, outrageous amount of resilience and grit you just got to keep going no matter what so you're up at 4 30 you're like going to get the cows in you are setting up new breaks or like allocations of feed you walk hundreds of cows usually you're walking into like a milking shed or a milking parlor or a cow shed you often have a couple groups a couple herds of cows you milk them it's kind of you'll finish that process at about seven that's kind of the almost the start of of where the actual work happens when you go out and there's a whole lot of like farm walking and strategic decisions to make and planning ahead and looking at the weather and trying to work out where you'll put the cows tomorrow and the next day and how much feed to give them if you're going to like slow that down or speed it up or how the cows are looking there's kind of all these decisions you're always making you're taking in like hundreds of different kind of inputs and so 
there's kind of that piece. You do the milking process all again in the afternoon. It's calving season. And so there's a bit like baby calves around. You are checking on this herd consistently. Like it is 11 o'clock at night. You'll, you've, you've been up since 4.30. You've done a whole day of work. You'll go. Right. You usually don't even have time for breakfast. You'll get home for the first time around midday. You'll have lunch. You might get like an hour at home if that. And then, yeah, you, you finish milking. And then it's 11 at night and you're back out in a paddock with a torch, like checking on all your like cows or all your, all your girls as such, trying to like make sure they're all okay. No one's having any issues. They're all calm. And then you go back to bed. And if, and if there's an issue, if there's a, if there's a cow that's, that's have, having trouble calving, then you'll walk that cow to the shed and you'll try and assist. And you could be there for two hours helping this cow to carve and so farmers like care so much about their animals and about the land and like they work like ridiculously hard and there's all these things they know that they should be doing and like they wish they could do but it's just like mate when it's like 11 at night and you've already clocked up like 100 hours that you just don't have time to like do that so yeah that is one of the most relentless jobs yeah it, yeah it is like unforgiving and that's like also you, don't, you learn like when you're a farm you don't talk a lot and so i think up until just recently in construction I took it it was the worst like mental health rates in industry so wow it's yeah it's pretty lonely it's you can easily work months on end without leaving the farm i think my old man when he first started farming he he'd go like three months and his car wouldn't leave the garage like his manager slash boss would they'd go to his house for lunch and dinner. And so he was up at 4.30 working all the way through to the night and then, you know, do it again tomorrow. And so, yeah, it's, it's a pretty grounding experience as a kid. Like you definitely, definitely instills like a, a core set of values. I don't think I would have had any other way. So no way. Wow. And let's compare that with a day in the life with Holter. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's quite different, which is cool. <laughs> so everything on a farm, every fence, race, gate, dog, bike is there to control the location of a cow. And the core principles of farming are changing the very complex and the tools, those race, dog, bike things, very primitive and rigid, and it's hard to use them to actually like hit these principles. And so Holter kind of fills that gap. So we can virtually fence cows, we can shift them anywhere at any time from anywhere in the world. We can allocate down to the precise like meters squared rather than a whole paddock or a, or a fraction, like a half paddock, which is still pretty rough. We have hardware on every cow that has solar panels. And so we're collecting so much information about these cows that you don't have to go out at 11 o'clock at night to check on this herd. Like we will tell you when there's an issue. And so, because most of the time you go out there at 11 at night or whatever, checking on your, on your cows that are about to calve and there's no issues. They're like, they're completely fine. So you're doing all this work for kind of no reason in a way, well, for peace of mind, really. And when you've got like a sensor on every single cow that understands all of their behaviors, what they're doing, how that changes, we can pick up things like calving hours before they go into labor, just through behavior changes, sicknesses. Cows are stoic, so actually they hide all the things from you as well, or they hide them visually. So like a cow won't visibly limp until her hoof or her foot is really, really bad. But, you know, a few days before that or a few weeks before that, she will walk less. And so that's very clear in the data. Or she'll eat less because she's spending less time standing. And so that we like, 
when you look at data is super clear, but as a farmer, good farmers will be able to pick it up loosely, but even then you've got 400 cows and you try, you know, you can't, you're trying to keep an eye on all of them. It's, it's pretty difficult, right? One farmer with two eyes keeping an eye on 400 cows <laughs> compared to a sensor on every, like a Fitbit on every single cow monitoring every single movement. So there's a whole like monitoring piece. You never have cows in rivers, obviously, or any sensitive environment. That's easy. Not only that, we can prove it to you. We can show you the data. You, yeah, the whole health of the herd is up. They don't have to be in these 400 cow groups or 1,000 cow groups. They're in, they could be in 20 groups of 20. Like, mm-hmm. And they can roam kind of wherever they want. You pull out all your fences. Well, that's what you move towards. And you've got this big open meadow, effectively, where these cows are grazing wherever. You're kind of tweaking where they're grazing so they're going to the right grass so you're still running a very efficient farm and then come like four in the morning or five in the morning all the afternoon you spin them around bring them back to the shed let them back out again and so you kind of get you get to emulate the wild really yet you're still running a more efficient system because there's not these fences in the way so that's it's kind of the, the best of both there and you can do it from anywhere in the world really so that's a that's a pretty powerful thing as well incredibly powerful and what have been some of the major learnings that you've shared or you've taken away from farmers maybe in the last year as you've begun selling to customers? What are some of the major learnings? It's a good question. I think one of the major things we've learned is how resourceful and that you kind of know this, they obviously, they deal, they fix things with the tools they have around them all the time. But you never can imagine how resourceful these people are until you give them stuff they've never seen before. Like you give them a whole new system to run their farm. And then every day we log into this, into like this data we have and we're like, what, what's going on there? And they've found some like creative way to solve a problem that you had never even set out to do. And you're like, well, oh, that's smart. That's like, and so a good example would be when after you've milked the cows, you want to let them all go to the paddock at the same time. So even the like quieter, more timid cows get just the same opportunity to eat because um, they come out last. Otherwise, if you let all the like dominant, dominant cows go first, they eat all the food. Mm. So you hold them at the shed. You usually hold them on like a pad and but they're standing on like either concrete or, or like the race, which is more of a metal. And so that's not good for their hooves. So you don't want to do that too much. But if you let them go to the paddock, they eat the grass. So farmers actually start sending their cows back to the paddock, but they'll hold them in the old break, the old zone where they've already eaten. And then as soon as the last cow enters, they just flip one button and shift them, that herd, across, across the break into the new grass. And so they all get, and so like in terms of better like welfare on like your hooves and they're not standing on concrete for ages and there's no drop in efficiency. And so like that's a really simple example. There's, there's definitely some more complex ones, but that one, I oh, we never even thought of that, but that's pretty smart. And so, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot. They, I'd say our farmers are coming up with new stuff and new problems to solve at a rate almost comparable to us. So yeah, and then it's good. We productize some of them. Some of them were like, yep, that, that's valuable, but we, we'll get to that later. And so we're, I'd say we're learning a lot about like the system mm. as, as they start to use it. One of the biggest variables and you can kind of you, you sense it in the in the comparison is just how much time you can save in a farmer's life do you have any stories of how someone's lives might have changed after using halter yeah these these a couple of stories definitely you shave out 
like hours of their day and often at like some pretty crazy times early in the morning and um, also in the heat of the sun in the afternoon cows are walking kilometers for instance probably when you when you look at time it's these two pieces there's the quantity of the time and there's the quality of, of that time and so what we're finding is we're we are saving time and quite a lot of it but we are giving farmers like peace of mind so all the rest of the work they have way less stress when they're doing it they know like when they're at home with their family they know that all the cows are in the paddock and there's not any cows on the road or there isn't any sick cows or like it's all that information is there at any point if you're worried you pull your phone out have a look that's no, fine put your phone back in and so that i think is and actually probably a good example would be like you know when you're you come home from like a crazy day at work and you're super stressed and everybody around you knows that like your friends your family your partner like they know that you, you're just not in the headspace, your brain's mush, you just, you can't even, you're not even a human like at that point. Oh, and yeah, literally. And so kind of solving that has been incredible, I think. I think for like the families of, that all live there on the farm, like the quality of life is just, is a massive improve. We have one customer who lives in France and they used to live in, in New Zealand. After, their farms yeah, in New Zealand? Yeah, their farms in New Zealand. And after using Holter for wasn't very long at all they they bought a house in in france and moved the whole family across and Nani, that, was <laughs> <laughs> that was incredible for we like that was yeah such a good story especially after years of r d and trying to solve problems and trying to get the reliability up it's a mission critical system like yeah people worked pretty hard and and having just that like that little touch point of like wow we're genuinely changing people's lives here is super exciting and so yeah, that combined with the fact they're using it all the time. They do everything they possibly could do with it. The feedback's always, yeah, super powerful. And the, like, we're really just getting started. Like the core systems there and like the feature requests and the critical things we could do that provide huge value, which we just can't, like we just haven't got to yet. Like, yes, we know. We know that's like a massive problem and we'll, we'll get to it. Like it's mm. in the list of things to do. And so, yeah, it's, it's quite, I think it's quite refreshing for a lot, for a lot of farmers. It's a completely different take from what they're used to in the industry. How has the, the mission or vision evolved since, I guess, four years ago now? It's evolved a lot. We've never pivoted. We've always been very pure about what we, what we've set out to do, but it has grown massively. It definitely was quite focused around the dairy cow kind of initially, and there's, and there's a lot of cows and, and the problem's massive to solve. But pretty quickly we realized like, whoa, this is what we're building here can apply to any any animal or really any conscious conscious being. So uh -oh. the whole yeah, yeah, the whole layer <laughs> the, the, the whole layer of it, well, humans are, are very susceptible to Pavlovian conditioning, like happens all, all the time. But the whole layer between humans and animals is like it, that that gap right now is incredibly big. Like we you know, people have domestic dogs, but they know very little about like the behavior of that dog and what certain things mean. And the dog knows very little about what you're trying to get it to do, aside from some basic commands, like sit and maybe roll over and mm. like that a lead equals a walk. And really the, the big gap there is just repetition, right? It's just a piece of technology that can translate your intention and be perfect at it and do it 24 seven. And there's no variance. And so, you know, software is pretty good at this. And so that's kind of where the, oh, the vision today is to unlock the connection between humans and animals for a better world. Wow. And if we rewind back in year one, yep. 
you obviously have to test this, iterate it, build it. Yep. It's hardware. Mm-hmm. Let's through what it was like testing this on a cow. That was, yeah. Looking back, <laughs> it was it was pretty hardcore. Like in the space of 12 months, this is yeah, before we raised any money, we knew we were gonna have to be able to at least like show we can move a cow before we went out and raised and raised the money. Yeah. Otherwise we just sounded crazy. And so I think we would have built upwards of 20 different versions of hardware, um, which that by itself is like a bit of a feat in a, in a year when you've got no money. And, and also, yeah, like you, you don't really know what you're doing. Probably 20 versions of hardware. We drove from Auckland down to our, so my family farm in the Waikato, I would, I would have lost count of how many weekends and how many weekends we would have like pulled an all nighter the days before to get the hardware ready to then finish the code, to try and debug it, to drive it all the way to farm. And then I don't know, for it to crash for like eight hours continuously, you just can't get the thing running or you put it on a cow and it just it crashes or it starts to rain and it's not waterproof or the cow just has no idea what, like what you're trying to do. Just, the algorithms aren't good enough or aren't sophisticated enough at that point. And so, yeah, there was a lot of long drives home from, from the farm at midnight on a Sunday, feeling pretty sorry about all this effort you'd put in. And it'd it take, take a lot to like pick yourself back up off the ground and, and do it again kind of week after week until you, you got these little hints that you're like, hold on, that was something there. Like that cow, like that cow responded, flicked their head or like, we're some, yeah we're getting somewhere here and so <laughs> and once you get that like when you've been going for months on nothing oh like just the sniff that you are going the right way is Cause like, effect. i've seen it yeah. write it down <laughs> yeah it's incredibly motivating um yeah oh my gosh and so after 12 months 20 iterations what was it like after you had landed on something that was clearly working well, it was only just like working, kind of had this mantra in my head, which was like, this thing should fail pretty much the day that we raise money. Like <laughs> not, not Holter, just to be clear, the hardware yes. the system, yeah. the engineering system. And so I knew every single line of code I was writing was, was bad code, but that was fine. <laughs> and so really we like, we pulled it all together just enough to get enough data to get like all our purchases and stuff together to pretty much close our first, our seed round. And then we threw away everything and started again. We were like, cool. We know the principles. We kept the core algorithm, but we hung up the collar <laughs> and it was a, yeah, not saying I'm, I'm proud of from a workmanship point of view. It's pretty, pretty messy piece of hardware, but hung that up, pretty much deleted all the code and, and started fresh, started hiring. Started Please tell me that's hanging up in the office somewhere. It was hanging somewhere. I think we did a big clean out and I'm not sure where it is now, but yeah, there is, there's heaps of old hardware around. That's awesome. sure. we've, we've built many more versions since then. And how did, what was it like emotionally knowing that you needed to get rid of it or was it just oh, really- Like you're so, you're always looking ahead, right? So I didn't even, you don't even really think about it. There's no like sentiment whatsoever. There's no, yeah. There's no kind of feelings of like, oh, that's sad. Like you're so busy trying to land like your first hire or trying to close this office or you know, negotiate down a, a five-year lease. You're like, hold on, five years? Like, no way. Six months? Like, I don't know if we'll fit it here in six months' time. And so, yeah, you never have time to really stop and look back. And I think that's probably a good, it, it, 
most of the time that's a good thing. I think that can get quite tiring for your team sometimes if you, if you just never stop quite like mission focused. That's actually feedback I got from my team just recently in my, in a 360 was like sometimes just like the mission focus is like, it's incredible, but seem to like stop and a little bit of empathy and a little bit of, yeah, would be, would be incredible. So. I mean, that's really good feedback and I mean, good for everyone to hear. Yeah. We all get so caught up. Oh, yeah, we are huge believers in, in feedback. Someone said a line the other day, and I wrote it down on this in my book. It was things unsaid is as bad as lying. And I was things like, Things unsaid is as bad as lying. Yeah. If you have an opinion, like a valid opinion about something and you don't say it, you're you're pretty much lying. So and so yeah, it is I think it's like an incredible. And so especially in a fast paced like environment, which is you're doing a whole lot of stuff no one's done before. Like you need everybody to be very direct and very honest. And you know, interns need to be able to come up to, to me and give me feedback like live on the spot. They think I'm mm. doing something wrong. And so, yeah, it's all part of kind of building, building the right culture, I guess. Well, let's talk about building the right culture at Holta. What are some of the values that you stand by? Well, the, so we've got seven values. We went through actually a bit of an exercise with the team. We've got everybody into a room to pretty much put down like what is the dream environment you want to operate in as such we mapped them all down and put them on the wall and and kind of paired them with a few things which we aspired to be and so we landed with seven values team over talent speed matters we're pioneers hunger over experience act like a ceo don't compromise the future and farms come first and so and we kind of have little like precedents that go with them and um, we try and explain them we do, I know a lot of companies have values and they're on the wall and you kind of like pay lip service to them. I think we genuinely like live and breathe these. These are ones that we, you know, we, we use them as much as possible to make every decision. We, we refer to them all the time. We have like a formal, formal roles in the company called a culture lead where you, we have put, I guess it's like a stamp on their back that says like, hey, these people are great examples of our values. Like, if you wanted a walking, living, breathing example that you could look at and be like, oh, I could be more like that. These are the people. And so um, that's this been isn't a, like that's employee been a, of the month, is it? No, nah, nah, this is like, this is a formal job title that gets added to your like JD or added to your contract. Oh, so wow. you can be like, uh, we've got a head of hardware and culture lead and a lead front end developer and, and culture lead. And we've actually just added three more, but, and it's about a 12 to 18 month stint you kind of roll on and then we induct new ones and then you roll off and you kind of join the like culturally alumni and you do hiring screens and interviews you hold like leadership to account on the culture you yeah it's like this this focus of like hey we want to spend just as much time talking and thinking and designing the culture as we do our product and this is a really like neat way that we can do that who's someone who comes to mind that is was a culture lead and how did they live and breathe the values of Holter and maybe give us an example. You don't know. Yeah. I just love to hear sort of how that actually came to fruition. And so the, the, the start of the culture leads, I think we were trying to, it's kind of that, that notion of like, it's what you do that matters, not what you say. Mm. It's like, well, what, who, who does it the best? And like, why don't we just formalize that? Why don't we say this? Why can't everybody be more like this person? or the, the values of this person at least. And so that was how like the culturally thing started. Probably a good, 
example of how like culture-based decision-making works or what it, what it relies on is kind of people over process or removing or context over control pretty much. So you remove all the controls. So you don't really have that many approvals or like systems or anything like that. And instead you replace it with context and like a shared set of beliefs. And so a really good example that comes to mind is we were, we run our, all our production in, in China and this was pretty early days. We had a couple engineers over there and we had an issue that cropped up and the whole line like ground to a halt because this one component fell out of spec and we couldn't like the whole factory was there working on they couldn't work out how to like why pretty much the root cause to this falling out of spec and so this is like all this guy would have been 22 or 23 at the time and he just packs his suitcase full of these electronic components i think he packed like two or three suitcases he hops on the next flight home he has to somehow get them through like customs and the border he comes straight from the airport auckland airport into into the office he he doesn't he didn't even pack any clothes into the office he's a team waiting here they work like through the night they pretty much work out what's wrong they fix these like suitcases full of components they pack the bags back he hops on the next plane goes straight back to china gets them somehow back through customs not sure how and to the factory and then the line starts again and it's all within the space of like a few days a couple of days maybe and it's all like you know no one said there was no hey can i buy this flight it's going to cost this much money it's like i know this is important i know that that cost is irrelevant to the cost of production being down like i can make all these calls on the ground myself like and i know that this aligns with our values speed matters like as a good we are pioneers and so like i'm confident that i'm making the right decisions here and so yeah, as a result, you get like that kind of stuff. I guess a, a lot of companies could easily be, you know, weeks and an investigation. And I would, we uh, wouldn't even want to think about how that would go, but it's probably a good example. He's actually a culture lead as well, by the way. Do you have another example? That's amazing, by the way. That is such a cool story. <laughs> do, you, do you have another example of context over control? I love that idea. The best way I can, would be the best example. So Netflix have this principle, which is like a tree versus a top-down pyramid. And so actually this is, I would say this is why startups exist. You know, why does a startup have any right to compete with a big corporate? Like it's, you know, we all know in the startup world why, but like from a first principles perspective, that seems crazy. Like from a, they've got so much more resource, so much more like money, people, everything. And so customers, and I like I think it breaks down to a simple thing, which is like trying to please your boss, pretty much. Like in a top-down pyramid, like the CEO sets like some strategic initiatives, and everybody kind of like shuffles under that, and they all try to like pile up to to hit some metric. And and you could be the engineer on the ground implementing something, and how many times have those people been like, man, this is stupid, like. Mm. When the system's not ready for this, like it's just, and you do it because you're like, well, this is like what my boss wants. And, and so everybody's kind of like pretty much misaligned, right? You're not doing what's the right thing for the company. You're doing what's the right thing, like politically to get a promotion or to move up or because you're trying to make your boss look good. And so this notion of a tree is instead of having top down, like control and policy and initiatives, you, your senior management of the trunk of the tree and their job is just to share as much context as possible. And then the branches are like your managers and then right at the edge of the branches, like the thin branches are like, are your individual contributors. And they're the people that have all the information, like they're the ones that are receiving 
all the inbound information or the results off the ground and they have all the context. And so they actually are in a far better position to make like the calls and the decisions. And so I think the key thing is that you should never really, I shouldn't really be making many decisions on the whole. I should just be sharing context and then allowing people to, to make those decisions. And then the results will speak for themselves, right? And so that's a, a, a hard concept to get and it relies very heavily on having a, like a high density of talent. You can't have people like within the organization that aren't able to cope with that much freedom because that will just ruin, that will grind the whole machine to a halt. But yes, the, the tree analogy is phenomenal. I think that's amazing. I think it outlines like how you should position yourself as like as a CEO or as a, a senior manager. And I think it's actually very like, I'd like to say that I'm incredibly intelligent and I could work this out for myself, but you almost don't have any other option when you're a young founder. You're like mm -hmm. I can't pretend to be this like 30 year old, um, 30 years experience, uh, in the industry, I'm making all these great decisions. Like, no, 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 no. I'm just here to provide context and like get out of your way and let you make right. the decision. And if you hire the right people, then the results will, you know, will, will follow. And so that's been, I think that's the best way to think about context versus control. And I think that's fundamentally why startups are able to achieve so much relative to often like big corporations that are, that are like struggle to, to move at that pace. And if we, so one of the ideas in that sort of a tax hierarchy, do you have any thoughts about hierarchy and how you scale that? Uh, we, you should or? <laughs> we have very, yeah, very little hierarchy. And, you know, this is like everybody, most people know that startups wear t-shirts and hoodies and, and whatnot. And, and there's actually a good, a good reason for that. And a lot of people. Oh, Pardon? <laughs> One of our values, we wear t-shirts. Yeah, wear a t-shirt. Yeah, it is. And most people just think it's because like, oh yeah, that's cool. But it's actually because you don't want the most senior person with the flash of suit to have the loudest voice, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is like a, we call it an idea meritocracy or however you want to frame it. But that is like a good example of something that you can do to try and remove like this rigid hierarchy. We right now run a very flat structure which is we're quite a broad company. So that that's good. How do you scale it? I think you need like fundamentally, you, you do need a, a little bit of structure and a little bit of, of a hierarchy, but on the whole, like, I think it's not, it's not that critical to, to most companies and it's easy to default to it. It's easy to default to like a policy or like I'm your boss and you need to do this. And usually that's actually just a patch for like a, a a bigger root cause problem where you, they're missing the context or they're missing the freedom or you haven't empowered them. That's usually a, a sign of, of a bigger issue. Mm. And I guess it just focuses the importance of democratizing decision-making and, and why pyramids just don't make sense. Yeah. The, one of the critical things that run that, like the tree structures, you need everybody to hold everybody accountable. You need great feedback. Yeah. You need great transparency. Nothing is like lying. That's what just keeps ringing in my ear. Like yeah. this whole idea and the importance of that. And if you like, imagine, imagine if you sold a car and you knew that it had like an issue and you just Freak. didn't say anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that, you, you would feel shit about that. You yeah. like, you would know that you are, you are lying, right? Like, and that's a really clear example. And most people like don't do that. But it's essentially the same thing when you're sitting, when I'm looking at you in the face and 
I'm watching you do something which I know is wrong or I, it's making me feel a certain way and you don't know that and I don't tell you. Like, I am just lying to you. Even um, in a more like nuanced angle where you could be adding value, but you're scared to say something and you hold back and then you yeah. don't add that value and you never know. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, it is having your team know that they can say to anybody at any point, I disagree is a very powerful thing. Like that is, yeah, that needs to happen. Otherwise you, you never get to the right outcome. And to get there though, as you mentioned, you need a density of talent. And I'm sure yep. you've thought a lot about hiring yep. people in the world. Yeah. So what's, your, what's your process at Halter? Uh, there's one line we always come back to and that's if you're, if you're not headhunting, you're not hiring. You, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You like, especially in a startup, you know, a lot of like, you don't have the, the huge pool of a Facebook or that type of stuff. And, and a lot of the, like the best people, it's cliche. A lot of the best people aren't looking like you have to go actively network and, and kind of hunt, hunt these people out. And so, yeah, we, as a rule of thumb, we say, if you're a hiring manager, it's 20% of your time. Like it's that important. You have to find effectively a day a week or if not more when it, when it comes to hiring. So yeah, our process, uh, we don't have like, we try not to have processes, so it changes for everybody. And typically though, our hiring like set of steps or, or whatever is, is it's pretty lengthy. We try and we take a lot of care. You meet a lot of different people. You meet a lot of the team, you do tech tests. Like we think a lot about that and we don't mind if a role is open for, you know, I think our longest role was an electrical engineer, which we only hired like a month or two months ago. And that was open for eight months. Wow. like and credit to credit to the hiring manager he was desperate for how like they that team was absolutely slammed and working like some of the biggest hours in, in the company and his ability to like walk out of an interview after like month six and i don't know hundreds of people he's met and be like nah not right <laughs> it was like that uh, that is incredible yeah like, not once was the temptation to be like, oh, like I know they'll be helpful. Like I know they'll be able to like take a bit of like, take a bit of the workload. And so, yeah, think a lot about hiring. I think everybody does though, as my, and you can definitely get, you can definitely get good at it, but I think everybody tries to hire well. And even the very, very best are, you're only running at what, like if you were 70 to 80% hit rate of picking A players, that'd be like pretty, that's pretty good, I'd say. Anybody who claims to be higher than that, I'd probably say is lying. And so you get into this really tricky scenario where, where you need to hold your talent density high. Fundamentally, that underpins everything, right? If you want to be able to share context and transparency, you need people that you can trust. And if you, you don't want to have any, any process, you need people that are going to thrive in the environment. And A players only want to be around A players. So you, you will get it wrong. And then you're in a real tricky spot. And it's like, what do you do about someone that you've hired that within, you know, a couple of months, you're like, oh, damn it. I got that wrong. And sometimes the role was wrong. Sometimes you just didn't, you just didn't know enough. Sometimes like the match doesn't fit. And so, yeah, that's where you get into this tricky spot of like, if you were to say it in a really bold way, it's like, well, how do you fire well? I think fire is probably a, a really loaded word and mm. comes with a lot, of, a lot of, if you're fired, it feels like a real bad thing. And I think often it's just, that's not true. Like you can be an incredible performer. It's just not the right fit or it's not a match. 
And so, yeah, I think often it's just a style mismatch actually when it, when it comes to things like that. And so that's fast. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think actually listened to a podcast and I think it was the CEO of Reddit was saying like, when you hire someone, these are a, these are chance that your company gets better. Like, you know, you hope you hire the right people and you, and you get a good person in and if everything goes well, it gets better. When you fire someone, just because human nature, you're always, you always tend to like give people more and more chances and, and, and whatnot. When you fire someone, it's pretty much a guarantee that your company gets better because like, if anything, you just don't have to, it's not filling your mind anymore. You just don't have to think about that, like that mismatch. Mm. And so I thought that like is an incredible way to think about it, but it is. Yeah. And in reality, I think the high talent density thing helps itself in this case, because often they never quite like bid in to the team. Like if that, if the mismatch is there or they like the team kind of like churns through them in a way, like they never quite like keep up. They're always, like they're always holding up the machine and mm. after a while it's like it's pretty evident to, to people and they go like man this is like just it's just a bit chaotic for me or it's a bit intense like i can't like, i don't i don't thrive in this environment and mm. then they and they'll, i bet you they'll be like absolute stars at other companies it's just like for how like we run and our like level of chaos and speed and and whatnot it requires us you know a certain type of person it's almost like this idea of dating on both sides. That's why it's such a loaded mm. word, fired. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel pretty strongly about this. And I often talk to you know, people outside of Holter about it, like my friends. And the other night I was explaining to somebody about yeah, the notion of it being a mismatch. And the best example I had is like, if I, I, I think I started this by saying like, I could never work in a, in a big corporate. Mm. And so if I somehow found myself working at, I'm an engineer, so <laughs> if I somehow found myself working at like a Becca as an example, yeah. and I, I just like, I just don't resonate with the process. I'm doing stuff that I don't believe in. I'm like, what, like, why am I doing this? This is pointless. And if my manager come to me after two months and said like, Hey, like, I think that this isn't a good fit. Like the way that you like to work and I get it and like kind of, what you what I see you struggling with and how we run as a company like we're not going to be able to shift the whole company to match that and we're doing this for a reason I don't think that like you're going to thrive here I think if we carry on doing this we'll go for a year and it's just like it's not going to end well how about like how about you uh, help you find like another job mm. like, I think that notion is like I would be like hey yeah no one likes me fired obviously the process sucks but like that's I think it's very true. And if anything, it helps me find somewhere that I'm going to be better at like quicker. And often it's like a lot of people are too scared to also make that jump. So yeah, firing is a bad word for it. You mentioned in an earlier chat that we had, you make a lot of culture based decisions. Mm -hmm. Can you dig a little bit deeper into that? In its simplest form, this is like, I'm an engineer buying components from America and I'm booking shipping and I can put them on like in it. I don't know. I can put them on the slow option and it will cost me $30 or I can put them on like DHL express premium and it's going to cost me $280. Like what do I do? Yeah. And it's having the ability to be like, actually that's going to save me two weeks. It's a critical component. That $280 is a no brainer. Mm. I should definitely do that. And so that is, you know, one of our values is speed matters. We don't have a value, which is like save 
like we're all thrifty, but it's not like save money at all costs or efficiency is important. Like efficiency, actually, I often speed is more important than efficiency. So like you, then they are quite different principles as, as well. But so yeah, that's probably the courier example is like probably the simplest way that you can, ex, you can explain that. And there's no way as a manager, I can be across all that stuff. I can't turn up to your desk and be like, oh no, make sure you put it on the fast, you know, the fast plane or whatever it is. Like you just, you can see how that doesn't scale, right? And so again, it's like context-based control or yeah, culture-based decision-making. And how do you sort of let that breathe throughout the entire organization? I think it's really important that you're like, you have strong managers that you can get, like get them on board with that. I think it's really important that you you resist the urge to like come in and override like big decisions and you have to let people kind of like run their own process and, and learn for themselves sometimes. And often actually the amount of times I've looked at stuff and been like, oof, I'm not sure I'd do it like that, but I've given you the context. Like, hey, it's actually, make sure you remember that super important this works. Like that is, I know we're moving fast, but also like the reliability of this is important. And then it turns out I'm just like, I'm completely wrong. I'm like, well, good work. That's, mm. that's epic. And that's, you know, it's so easy to come in and, and like just throw your voice around and, and make a big decision when you're not actually the best person to do that. And so I think, yeah, to allow culture-based decision-making to work, you have to remove the control or like the loudest voice decision-making as such. You've got to just get that out of the way mm. and they'll fill it themselves with, with context. I love that. I want to switch gears though. So where do we see Halter in 12 months? To- 12 months on like a meaningful percentage of, of the farms in New Zealand, if not in you know, Europe and South America. I think like for us at the moment, it's, it's really just getting collars on cows pretty much. Like the customer, we've got a massive pipeline, the product's there, they use it, they love it. And it's just really an execution piece for us, building the collars and putting them on cows hiring the right people to help us do that. So definitely a big like growth phase for us. It's pretty exciting. The team's like super pumped. The vibe in the office has been, has been incredible recently as we like finally kind of rubber hits the road as such and, and it's, and it's going. And definitely we talk a lot about other verticals, you know, not, not, not a cow. And that's pretty interesting. And there's, and there's some work that is kind of loosely there in the background, which we're all pretty excited about, which hopefully, would make some good progress on in the next 12 months. Exciting times ahead. Yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's, it's good. Thank you so much for joining me, Craig. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure to be on. Now it's time to listen to the earliest investor in Holter, the founder of Rocket Lab. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining me today. What was it like to work with Craig when he joined Rocket Lab? Yeah, sure. I mean, Craig, Craig joined Rocket Lab and reported directly uh, to me. I'd have a, a small relationship with Craig while he was still at university. He'd, he'd pitched me an idea. And although, although the idea was rubbish, I could see that Craig had all the elements of, of what it takes to be a great entrepreneur. So, so we, we, we employed him and, at, at Rocket Lab and, and basically he just you know, he learned and, and spent a lot of time with me and, and also you know, other, mem- other team members. So, you know, I think, I think that's always good to, you know, if someone's looking at starting their own business and things, being thrown into an organization that's, that's, that's kind of like a giant chaotic, chaotic startup, especially at that time is, is, you know, it's a good kind of introduction to, to what, it, you know, what, what it's like.
and what it's going to be. Mm. So, I, you know, although the role wasn't officially an entrepreneur in residence, that's really how I, I viewed, it, viewed it because I knew that Craig, we had Craig for a temporary period of time until he thought of his new idea. I see. And just before we go on, can you please just make sure that your microphone is coming from your headphones? I'm just getting a little bit of feedback. Yeah. So you mentioned he was the entrepreneur in residence. What does that even mm. entail in sort of the early days at Rocket Lab? Well, I mean, you know, it wasn't, wasn't an official title, but, you know, there's basically two things I'm passionate about here. And, and one, one is, is, is obviously space. And mm. the other is trying to grow New Zealand and grow New Zealand's entrepreneurs. We have fantastic entrepreneurs here, but the environment they're cocooned in is, is somewhat you know, limits the potential. So, you know, I, I've been very outspoken about what I think about the VC community and what, what's right and what's wrong and, and, and trying to pull every lever that I can to, you know, to help the community. And, and I, I think it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a real shame. Like, we, where are all the billion dollar rocket labs and zeros? Where, where are they all? There's no reason we should have created heaps by now with the quality of entrepreneur we have. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, some of the founders in we've seen just started a fund in New Zealand. We're incredibly excited about the talent that is has been for a while in New Zealand. And the ambition is just really starting to take off, which is super exciting. Agree. When did he first come to you with the idea of Halter and, and what was what was the sort of pitch like? Yeah, so prior prior to Halter, Craig had had pitched me, uh, you know, an, an idea, which, like I say, I thought was rubbish, but, but, but he was, you know, you could see that he was going to go, he would realize that and, and do something differently. And he did. So, so, you know, Craig, uh, Craig left Rocket Lab and, you know, he gave me a call one day and says, Hey, Pete, I've got this idea. So, you know, he, he, he came in and, and, and pitched it to me. And the moment I heard it, it, it's like, yep, now, now we've got a great entrepreneur with a great idea. This is going to be good. Mm. I'm in, let me in. What are some of the traits that you respect in entrepreneurs? So there's, there's really, I think there's, there's really a few that are very obvious. So the first one is someone who is willing to, to work extraordinarily hard. You, mm. you know, you don't create big things on Monday to Friday, eight to five. That just does not happen. You have to, you have to be willing to sacrifice everything to, you know, to work really hard and grow a business. Just also, you need, you need, you need to be bold and, think of think big and and kind of undeterred by failure i think those those traits are are all you need a big idea and work hard that's Mm. it there's no more magic than that and then you obviously saw that in craig and you obviously think those are pretty important tenants to halter's idea how have you sort of seen that sort of play out as your relationship has grown with craig um, well, the wonderful thing about Craig and, and the team there is, is you can say something and Craig just goes, yep, I get it. Mm. So, you know, we, we all have a lot of war wounds from, from mistakes and, and things we've learned along the way of, of building a company. Some, some people are, you know, with especially people who are very bold, it's a little bit more difficult to try and, you know, get ideas absorbed. Craig is, is, Craig is a sponge. And he surrounds himself with people that have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and, and just draws, draws that. So the, 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 the thing I love about, you know, being on the whole board and, and an investor in that company and Craig in general is, you know, 
you, you, you can say something to Craig and he goes, yep, that makes sense. And then it's like instantly executed. There's not, there's not kind of a, you know, a big period of, of kind of indecision and, and it's mm-hmm. just, it's just the advice is taken and it's executed immediately. And sometimes if, if the advice is, is, you know, we, let's, let's be honest, we, we, not everybody gives the best advice. And sometimes mm-hmm. the advice you're giving can be, you don't have all the context to make it the best advice. But I think that that is an important trait as an entrepreneur as well as to, to know when to take the advice and to know when to say you're wrong. So I think I think that that is that's something that's super impressive with Craig is you know Craig we 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 need to go and raise a big round, yeah we do okay let's go, he's on a plane, <laughs> so you know that 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 is that is what makes a great entrepreneur. Yeah, and how do you know who to take advice from? How do you what what are some of the filters that founders should be creating in their head so that they don't waste time listening to the the wrong people? Well, this this is the tricky thing, right? I mean, because there's. I, and I would say, and I, you know, I say this somewhat unashamedly that the majority of the advice I ever received from New Zealand founders or people in the VC space mm. was 100% wrong. <laughs> so, you know, you, you have, and you, you do have to, you ultimately that's a decision that you have to make. You have to, you have to make as, as, as a founder is, okay, what, what are the things that this, this makes sense and what are the things that does, doesn't make sense? But I think it's always really important to get a global perspective. So, you know, I think I think that's that was one of the things that was really important for Halter is to, to bring in some some you know global leaders from from an investment standpoint, because you know one of the things I, I see in New Zealand a little bit is that someone will come up with an idea <clears throat> and and they'll claim it's world class without actually going to the world to test whether it's world class. Mm. And I've seen a number of businesses where I've brought some of our investors down from Rocket Lab, and while they're down here, I'll say, "Hey, come and have a look at this company and this company while you're here." And you know, there's been a number of instances where they've gone, "Well, yeah, this this is done five years ago by this company," and, it's, and blah blah blah. And it was just, you know, people have been working on this idea for years in New Zealand that had already been overdone. So you know, the first thing I always say to an entrepreneur is, "Get on a plane." And go to where your market is, and really find out if you're world class or not. Because there's no point in chewing glass if you're not world class. <laughs> what do you think is world class about Halter? Well, I mean, the the whole approach here. If, if you you know, farming is obviously and dairy farming is is, is a well understood you know environment in in New Zealand, and. It, it is something that is, there's been a lot of innovation in New Zealand, but there's been, you know, less kind of drastic disruption. So anything, anything that is a large industry, I mean, as Craig will tell you, there's more cows on the planet than people. So, you know, anything, anything that has, you know, the possibility of, of, of a large disruption in a, in a really large market, I think is, you know, is, is the, those are the things that are very attractive. You talked about the board, you've sort of, sp- spoken about how important it is to to have a balanced board and and at least have that global perspective how did you think about forming that early board with craig well if you if you look at the investors that craig has around the board you know the the majority of them are are rocket lab investors as well and so you know i've always i strongly believe that your your the the formation of your board is just incredibly important if, if you have an engineering team and you hire rubbish engineers, you get a rubbish product. If you have a board and you hire rubbish board members or bring in rubbish investors, you have a rubbish company. 
Mm. So it's super critical to be very, very, very fussy on who you bring in as investors and, and board members. And, and I think that was one of the important things. And we've done this you know, a few times now with New Zealand companies is, is to kind of do the flip and get in world-class VC, Silicon Valley type folks that really inject that, that global thinking and that global access to capital and that global access to contacts. You know, the, the investors that Craig has around the table, if you want to meet anybody, a meeting can be arranged. So that, that is a very powerful um, tool to have in your toolbox. Mm. Can you describe what a meeting might be like with you and the other investors in a halter board meeting? Well, I mean, we, we all see ourselves as investors as, as a resource for Craig. Mm. So th- this, is, this is one of the things that I found really unusual in New Zealand is, is a lot of entrepreneurs feel like they're reporting to the board and asking the board to make decisions. That's rubbish. The, the CEO has is, is got a much better idea of what's going on than the board members. What the board members do is they have experience and they have contacts and they can, they can offer some, some select advice. So a board meeting, you know, for a, a, whole, a whole board meeting is more about, as board members, how do we help Craig execute? How do we help Craig grow the company faster, take bigger market share? And, you know, Craig will task ask to do things rather than us tasking Craig. I mean... Mm. That this this is the way it should be. What is what are some of the mistakes you've seen from New Zealand entrepreneurs when they're thinking about creating a board? I, I would say kind of what would you call them? Kind of career boards people. Mm. You know, people people who are on like a hundred different boards and they're just kind of that's what they do is they're on boards. Mm. And they're not bold. They're boring as anything. They're not bold. And you know are they are they really there to help the founder and are they are they there to accept risk and do big things so i, I see and this, this is a gross generalization there's, there's some fantastic board members in new zealand so don't don't you know i don't want to to, to get it's anybody to get the wrong <laughs> yeah i know I don't, I don't want to get the wrong but i bet i mean you know if you're in a startup it's a way different kind of board member than it is in in like a, a you know a, a really established mm. corporation it's a way different board member and you know, I, I, I expect, when I go on boards, and I, I don't do that many, but when I go on boards, I'm I'm committing the small amount of of kind of personal time that I have left to that. This is not you don't just turn up to a board meeting, and you know listen in and then say, try and sound important by saying a few words and then hang. No, you are you are there to work um, mm. in a startup. So one of, one of the traits that I see lacking the most in New Zealand boards, and this, would, this is a generalized statement in New Zealand boards, is, is boldness, willing to take risk and be bold. Mm. There's way too much conservatism uh, amongst New Zealand boards that, you know, we, we, we'll just, you know, one foot in the other will be, you know, very slowly and all the rest of it. I mean, if, if you have excess capital, you should just be taking that cap, capital and putting it into the nuttiest ideas you can think of. And 99% of them are gonna fail, but one of them might have the potential to outstrip the value of your business in total. So, you know, that, that ability to kind of think bigger and, and take some risk is, is the thing that I see lacking the most. You sort of raise an interesting point and there's the idea of spreading your bets and with the capital that you have, throwing 
across a few different bets and diversifying or solely focusing on one idea and one set of, I guess, core product elements. How do you think about the two? And is it different as the company grows or? Totally. Totally. Now the worst thing, the worst thing an entrepreneur can do is become, become kind of sidetracked. That Mm. is, and, and you see that too, right? Is that you, 80% 80% of getting there is quick and easy. And then 20% just takes forever and is hard. Mm. And you get to that 80% point and, and people start kind of, well, maybe it looks better to do this or maybe we'll pivot out of this and war, whatever. So it's having the, the kind of the, the, the fortitude to just keep on grinding. So the, the worst thing, the worst thing you want to do is, you know, some, especially some founders get bored very easily. So as things start to slow down and get hard and they just move on to the next idea, those are not the founders you want. Mm. You want the founders that will just grind and grind and grind and grind. And this, this is a, you know, a good thing about Craig is that you can, you, you know, that if there's a problem to be solved and you put Craig on it, he will just grind away until it's a stump. So, and, but the point that the, the time in a business for that, that more, more wasteful experimenting is, is once you have the product and you have this, then, and you're looking to grow, then, then, you know, what the, the challenge is, one of the challenges not to fall into is that you have a product and it's successful and then you stop innovating and stop thinking of new ideas. Mm. So that, that, that's the, the kind of the, the post success is you just after the take X amount of cloud into these ideas and we'll see what happens. Mm. And so now that it's a different phase, speaking to customers, launching with those customers and closing those customers, what have you learned from Rocket Lab that will be helpful? Well, I, I think I think Craig is, is is well positioned here because the thing that the thing you know about Craig and the whole team there is is they are as honest as the day is long. So you know I think there's a couple of key elements when you you're, you're dealing with customers and you know first firstly it's it's honesty. So playing trying to play games and and kind of complicated sales techniques and trickery and all that sort of stuff. It's just no, and you're not, you're not going to get that from Craig and, and the team there. At the end of the day, wonderful products almost sell themselves. So they'll not, they'll not belittling the amount of work they have to do, but they have an incredibly, incredibly, you know, distinct platform there that is, that is really going to disrupt farming in, in general and save a tremendous amount of, of, of effort and stress. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's really, you know, the team's job and, and they will do this well is, is to just not, not get too tricky and just bring a great product to market and people will, will want it and, and, and be, be honest and transparent with everybody. Let's rewind back to Rocket Lab's time of knowing that they have a product that customers want. What were some of the war stories that you had gone through in closing those very first customers? Well, I mean, we we had we actually had a customer signed before we even had a term sheet for the Series A round. So, you know, if you build a great product that that a lot of people need, then then you know you you, you don't have to worry too much about that. If you build a rubbish product and you've got to push it to people, then that's when things get a little bit a little bit more more difficult. But in saying that, you know, from a Rocket Lab perspective we're not, we're not selling a SaaS service. We're not, we're not selling a widget. You know, we, we're delivering spacecraft orbit and some of these spacecraft can be worth tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, it, it is a very different, a different 
kind of environment. But fundamentally, the one thing that is always the same is is just being completely honest and transparent. You know, I think that that is that is what we we do here, and, and I think it serves as well as is you know there's there's there's, there's no we don't try and hide anything from our customers. Mm. Uh, we, we're always we're always transparent about about the vehicle, the risks, the mission, and then we work super hard. And I think those are the those are the winning the winning elements. You mentioned in a TED talk last year that you were literally fighting physics every single day at Rocket mm. Lab. Pretty awesome TED talk. Do you see any relationship with physics and company building? Physics are hard laws. So physics, there, there is no bending of physics law. So that's very digital. However, there's a lot more shades of gray in building a company, a lot mm. more shades of gray. Whereas, whereas, whereas physics, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's one or zero. So, so, so no, I, w- I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I, I would, I wouldn't liken it that much. Cause I think, I think, you know, building a company is, is all about okay decisions and gray areas. So some some decisions you look back and you know you think that was exactly the right decision. Some decisions you look back or, or on and you think that was exactly the wrong decisions. But more often than not, you'll look back and you'll think, well, maybe that was the best decision, maybe that wasn't. So I think I think I think it's a lot more grey and nuanced building a company. From a team building perspective, that's certainly where a lot of the grey comes in. And we spoke about it with Craig how if you're hiring a high density of talent, which is really what you need, a, a sort of high hit rate, if you're being honest with yourself, is, yeah. is 80% of the time and hiring slow and firing fast. And even the word firing is 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 an unusual word to be using. And we sort of likened it to, to dating and sort of working through that process together and seeing whether the employee and the employer and it's the right sort of mix. Is that how you see it at Rocket Lab? Oh, absolutely. I mean, your, your company is who you hire. It's not a logo or a brand or anything. It's, it is 100% who you hire. And the, 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 the success of Rocket Lab has been we hired the most amazing people and continue to do so. The bar is super high and, and I make no, I am not ashamed of the fact that the bar is super high. And, you know, sometimes that's frustrating because some managers just need, need people, but mm. we refuse, we refuse to lower the bar. So, and, and then also, that having 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 a company full of a players ensures that the b players and the c players you know they, they don't you don't you almost never need to take any action because they kind of get self-expelled by by you know the, the a players so it, it and, and and i think this is this is kind of an uncomfortable area right because you do you do build relationships with people and, and you never want to see uh people fail but also the other side of that is that you know sometimes people are failing and if you're a startup it, it, it's do or die like you, you cannot carry any any kind of failure in in, in areas of, of talent that just aren't performing especially in the formative years you just it just can't be done now i, I you know you, we, we have a big facility in the us as well and in the us is it's kind of a hire and fire at will state and it's a very different work environment. Obviously, New Zealand is is complete opposite of that. And I think there is a balance to be had in the middle. You know, to being being able to you know exit someone from a business is is quite obviously you know the best thing for a business. But it's also sometimes the best thing, or quite often more than not, the best thing for the individual themselves if they're not if they're not performing and reaching their potential. 
So it's it's a bit of a tricky area, but unfortunately, it's a little bit brutal with a startup. Is is that you know, you, you just you just have to select the best people and deselect the the people that aren't performing, and move on. That's the, the only way to do it. And what are some of the qualities of those A-grade players and how do you filter for that in the hiring process? It's two things. It's just an, a work ethic and smart. Though, mm-hmm. you know, those, those are the really only the two things. Experience is great, but I will take somebody who, who is just incredibly sharp, incredibly motivated over somebody who has 20 years experience and, you know, falls asleep during the lunch hour any day. But I'm I'm a I'm a walking HR disaster. So I'm not even every time I walk into the HR room I think I think they just they lament. And but I'm super lucky here at Rocket Lab to have uh, someone like Sean O'Donnell who who really looks looks after that much better than I ever could. But in, in the formative years, it, it's really tough. It is really, really tough because especially in a startup, you, you bring people on and you're working in each other's pockets and you build relationships with them and their families. And it's like, it, that is, that is out of all of the things that you, you do as a company for me personally, anyway, that is, that is always the hardest thing to do is you see people who uh, just have not managed to, to, to reach the bar and, you know, you, you have to take action against it. And that is, that is, that is an incredibly unpleasant thing, but you know, you, like I say, it's it's it, you you just have to, otherwise the company will die. Mm. And yeah, it, it would be great to have more mechanisms. I think I think the ninety day trial was a really was a really good good thing because both the employee and the employer had an had an understanding that hey, this might not be the best place for me, and this 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 might not be the best place for you, and at least everybody would go into that with an understanding that we were trying this out. And within three months, you generally determine that you know, somebody is, is gonna be just a winner or not. And they know that too. But you know, now it's, I, I, think, I think we actually have lost, we've certainly changed our hiring, our hiring policies because of that. We spend a lot, lot more time now and we're far less likely to give someone a go. We, we will err on the side of caution and, and not hire versus mm-hmm. giving somebody a go. Well, listen, Peter, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on Wild Hearts. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email. Wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you'll subscribe. And if you liked the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you in a fortnight.